Chicana activist, editor, poet, novelist, and artist Ana Castillo was born and raised in Chicago. She is known for coining the term Chicanisma, which is defined in her book The Massacre of the Dreamers as a social political movement in the United States that analyzes the historical, cultural, spiritual, educational, and economic intersections of Mexican-American women that identify as Chicana. The term crossbred Chicana feminism, which came to include the indigenous ancestry of Mexican-Americans, unifying us with our sisters on the other side of the border. Ana Castillo, welcome to the Creative Process and One Planet podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you. Well, when you're excited, and I believe that we're you're going to read from my book of the dead. Yes, I, I because it is called the Creative Process. I've selected two very short poems that I think touch the subject, as they say, right on target, right on the money. One of them, in fact, is called "What Is Your Writing Process," and it's an it's a nice little short poem with mop in one hand cocktail in the other at 9 a.m. or night fly swatted roach corpses swept lola beltran belts mi ranchito through house speakers from room to room i hum off key mares fed dogs let out sun beating on the flat roof moon rising behind a cloud verses take form that's my little poem, What is Your Writing Process? And I have another one that I want to share, which is kind, it's, it's kind of dark humor, if you will. It's called Two Men and Me. I left Bukowski again, went back to Bolaño. Both men bad to their women. Me, like the rest, couldn't get enough smoked and drank themselves to death. They liked it rough, said that was how they got their best writing done. One winter, we all ended up in hell, ran into each other at a cafe. Revision, bar, public bath, fill in the blank. Chuck wanted to fuck. Roberto punched him in the gut. We quaffed a few whiskeys, they knew, I knew. I wasn't that kind of gal. Instead, we set out to do a three-way poem. Tu primero, said Bolaño. What? Bukowski said. No comprendo. How fucked up you gotta be? You can't understand Spanish even in hell. Roberto was mad. You illegals. The other started racializing the situation. No wonder he was in hell. Then again, we all were. I'm not Mexican, pinche gringo, Roberto yelled, throwing another swing. This time he got me in the eye by mistake. There are no mistakes in hell, the demon bartender said, handing me some eyes. That's the beauty of this place. The guys stopped. No one had ever seen ice in hell. Yeah, it was the start of something big. See, though that's a wonderful selection because the first one, yes, very appropriate. So thank you for sharing it and how 
it, it kind of invites us into your mind. And then the other one captures the humor. I mean, you know, you make humor, you're on hand. I always wonder about that too. Like, you know, who's, who's going to end up being there? <laughs> like the Bonanian Bukowski, of course. <laughs> well, we assume that in this book of poems, my book of the dead, one of the things that is dying is our planet. And we hear these, these sirens every single day, as I said, we are being warned daily by by experts and concerned people how fast that squandering is going at this time it is it's it's a case of urgency and it's astounding and very sad and very in a very a very sad and very pathetic comment on on modern life that most people are ignoring those signs and in reference to my book as a poet it seems to me, at least my, my personal view of it, is that one of the tasks that the poet takes on, it's a vocation, was born with it, it's this consciousness, it's being, serving as witness sometimes, as the, as the tracker with the ear to the ground and telling you what's, what's up ahead. And so in these poems, I've done that. And some of the, my favorite poets, such as the, Neruda, for example, when I was a young woman and, and read his, in his work, teach us to be the, the, the conscious, the consciousness of our, of our environment. And, and environmentalism is one of the greatest uh, alarms that we can sound. We ask ourselves, or at least I ask myself as a writer and as a poet, is that enough? Is it enough in the form of activism? By the same token, we could say, what is enough? We burn out by being, you know, sometimes as activists. Of course, we can write letters, we can protest. There's so many things that we can do. We can attempt to recycle or just do whatever it is that is within our capacity to do. But as I've mentioned about visual arts being my first love and many, 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 many years ago, leaving it and going entirely into writing, and then many years ago, doing it, but you know, sort of on the on the down low for me, and in the last few years, overlapping and prior to this book of poems, I've been more dedicated to these line drawings, which is more of a meditation for me. And somehow or other, I managed to also put together, the, you know, this collection of poems because I draw almost every day just about every day it has been for me is just allowing my subconscious to express itself when words don't come and uh, and now i'm back to fiction which i'm very happy about so so back to my writing but i have now been able been able to not leave one for the other and i do ask myself has this been enough but writing poetry has been something i've done all my life and so if it's not all that I do, it's what I do, and it's what I do first. And I'm hoping that those who love the genre and who go to the genre or have read my books or are interested in the subject would be motivated or inspired by these words to then take up the torch and do something themselves. Yeah, but definitely, I, I understand that feeling of, the weight of is this enough but with you know we can't get everyone to care about the planet unless they first feel 
and that we are humanity is like one organism. If we feel that this is our home, not just in our home, but the natural world is our home and we feel close to animals and nature and the whole ecosystem. But first we have to feel. So I feel that uh, poets do play a very important role. And apart from, you know, we've been focusing on your poetry, but of course you're a writer across genres as well as an editor, a writing teacher. And in my book of the dead, readers get to see your wonderful pen and ink drawings of these bold, courageous women. Social, social political commentary comes in, poems in English and Spanish. So how did this very multidisciplinary book take shape? When I began to, when I returned to, I shall, shall say began, when I, when I returned to line drawing, it was something I learned decades ago in an art class. Back then we used India and a fountain pen, which takes a certain amount of skill. Now I pick up a Sharpie and just start, you know, doing these freehand drawings. And so for me, it was, it was, it, it was elicited by my subconscious. There, some of the first drawings were done in, you know, kind of those journal books that you, you know, blank journal books that you might just, you know, sort of random picking it up and doing it. And they were hybrid people, you know, a, a male figure with lobster claws or a rat's tail, you know, strange things like that. So it was all unpremeditated. So it wasn't as if I was planning on, let me do something weird, uh, a weird self-portrait. It, it was always, you know, very spontaneous. I recall it, it was around 2012 where one of the poems that's in this book will when snow turns to rain and it is still winter, it's, it's, it's a long title. That's probably one of the earliest poems is included in there. I think it, it was around that time, a little bit later, where then I, I made a decision to begin working on a collection of poems. I think everyone, speaking of the writing process, I think every writer's writing process, of course, is very, very different and their writing journeys are very different. For me, I take a long time putting together a collection of poems. It doesn't mean that I'm not writing poetry at any given time. It means that it takes a long time for me to put together a solid collection that I feel confident uh, holds together. I will be very, very even brutal, if you will, uh, about what stays in and what, what, stay, what is kept out. I could disappear poems after years if I just reached the point where I feel like it's not working. So I knew it was going to take me a long time. And those years, as with a lot of people in, in, in the world and life, everyday life, there's changes, there's ups and downs. So there were starts and stops. I finally went back to it. I was working on the poems, but I went back to it a few years later with this concentration on this genre on the, that I was going, I was only writing in this genre and this is what I was going to do. I was doing those drawings madly every day for me, but I thought I can finish a poem. Maybe I can't, I'm not in this, the, the place right now where I can finish, you know, a novel because that's a whole other approach and whole, whole, whole other obligation, but I could finish an owl. Sometimes, I mean, a poem, I think sometimes people think, people outside of this discipline think that 
because the writing, because a poem may be very short and writing poems seem to be so, so based on emotion. They believe that it's sort of a spontaneous thing and it's easy to do. And oh, how many people have I run into in life that said, oh, I used to write poetry in college. Oh, I wrote poetry when I was in high school. I write poetry when I'm sad. I wrote a book of poems when I broke up with my girlfriend, you know, these kind of things. And, and, and it's true. It, it, there is, has to be, which you mentioned earlier, a certain element of empathy and compassion. But there's also, you put on the magnifying glass, like working in filigree, because you're also choosing form and you're, and you're being very selective with language and rhythm and so on. People always want, they ask and they always say like, what was the inspiration? You know, what were you thinking? And you don't know what you were thinking. You just express it. And so that takes a lot, you know, a lot of time. And so for me, it took me years to, to, to do it. And knowing that I was doing this, this is what I'm doing. And so even a, a short piece, like what is your writing process? And as I read it and I, as I look at it, it just popped in my head and I wrote it down on a napkin as I was going around sweeping the kitchen. And where, whereas it had that initial spark, perhaps when I was going sweeping the kitchen, it took me a long time going back to it and years actually to go back to it and make sure that it was right and that it fit in this collection. So I, that's, those are so many of the things that I think of as a person who, who started her writing life as a poet and takes it very seriously. Exactly. And I'll, people also say that about music. So maybe if you're stuck on a line, it's not stuck, but you kind of start to draw it. And then that kind of, kind of tell you what you're thinking. And I love that. <laughs> I wish I was a, a musician. And, you know, it's, that's one of my, you never know, life is long. One of the things I haven't delved into, but I, I, I completely get it. I think that if I was a, a, a proficient musician and and it was something I felt comfortable with I would probably be composing the way I did sort of spontaneously with the drawings or with poems and you you never know where it exactly comes I am a painter people think of me as a painter my first love is writing and I have all these things that I do like that that is interesting Yesenia, who is just has joined us who is a big admirer of your work I think Sikhanisma is something that means a lot to her and has inspired her. Hello, Anna Ometeo. I'm a Chicana from California, and it's so refreshing to see you and to have read your poetry. And for me, I think Chicanisma has been something that has allowed me to progress in academia, especially higher ed. So could you tell me a little bit about the process that you I know you were educated both in Chicago and in Germany. So could you tell me a little bit about how maybe that influenced Chicanisma? Well, I am born and raised in Chicago and my, my education there was mostly through the Chicago public schools and community college and state university. My master's degree is from the University of Chicago. I was not at all educated in Germany and I, I, I wrote about, about the process of putting Massacre of the Dreamers together. In the introduction, I thought it was very important. I think that I'm not sure. I, I know there's a, a French feminist, and I believe Angela Davis and myself, maybe the only 
individuals that were whose whose books were accepted as formal dissertations. We wrote our books in our own countries and, and through our own experiences. And it was it wasn't a an honorary doctorate by any means. It went through the process of 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 the doctorate process in in, in Germany. But we didn't have mentors in Germany. And we're produ we're producing our our theory, our ideologies, our thinking through our experiences and our previous writing and so on. And so that's what happened with Massacre of the Dreamers. I had written uh, poetry and I had published my first novel, The Miskewala Letters, and it produced a lot of interest among academics in Europe in the mid eighties. Not the, I'm not the only one. It was Chicanos, Puerto Ricans, Native Americans, black people from the United States. There was this interest in, in marginalized cultures in the U.S. In the great democracy. And so the French and the Germans and a few other places that, that eventually came in were very interested in us. And I was one of those uh, writers that they were interested in. But we didn't have, as Chicanos, we didn't have precedents in that sense. There were writers, there were pre previous poets, but a radical feminist of color, we were and remain in league with other women of color in the United States and in the world and working class women. And, and we had to contribute our voice and our perspective. And that's, that's where I came in with, with my generation of, of writers. Gloria Sadula and Shri Moraga with their anthology was very popular at the time. Uh, was being read in Europe, and as I mentioned, Angela Davis, and you know, particularly African American women writers were being read. So that's that was the setting behind my my working on that book. And it's so you really, I guess you coined that term, chicanisme. You know, before we think about the landscape into which you you know came to to light, feminism had a different face, I guess, at that time? Well, feminism in the, in the 70s was dominated by middle-class women, middle-upper-class women. I could say easily white also, but that would also include, include obviously white women from Europe and, and that, you know, from that background. And, and in the middle class and upper class Latin America and Mexico, a lot of them were actually light-skinned white women that had that privilege. They came from homes that that obviously had housekeepers and cooks and nannies and, you know, mothers who were probably already educated but had all this going on. Whereas the the Mexican-American generation that I grew up with were people who had come here looking for work. And so they were working in the fields and factories as my my mother did and, and many of us did. So so there wasn't that there wasn't a place to go. I can't go to Mexico to identify with the Mexican feminism that's developing there. And there was. I can't go to the white women's feminist movement necessarily in this country because of racism and classism. So with all of those nuances in, in mind, we we indeed had to have a, a hook to had our, hang our hats on, there was the Chicano movement and there was something considered to be Chicanismo. And 
the term Chiganismo was sort of spontaneous as I was working on the book, because another, th another aspect of the Chigana, and also it came uh, with uh, the Chicano movement, was our, our excavating of our indigenous histories and that we are so dislocated. We were dis so dislocated from in the mid eighties into the present because of many reasons, which we don't have time obviously to get into now. We have a migration of indigenous cultures to this country. We have actually Mixtecas and Zapotecas, second, third generation already who are speaking English, who come from those communities. We didn't have it then. We didn't, we didn't have that connection. We just knew about it. We had to go to Mexico to get it. So we incorporated all of that. And that's where the X also comes from. The Chicanisma includes acknowledgement of, of the conquests and colonization. So I just wanted to go back to your book and there's a poem called Amazonian Did you have any relation to Brazil prior to this book or did you do it so forth to promote environmental justice globally and in Latin America? My, my graduate work at the University of Chicago included my learning Portuguese. I don't speak it fluently now because I've subs I don't have anyone around to speak it with and I've I've lost it. But I did speak it fluently at that time and I went to Brazil on my own. And so I do feel very connected to the country and I studied it in political history and so on, as I did all of Latin America. I have a memory of my father who worked in a factory and was working class, but read the daily newspaper every day, saying to me one day as he read this in the paper across the table having dinner about the burning down of the Amazon. Fast forward several decades and we have this person, in, leader, head of Brazil today, who is lately burning down the Amazon and denying it. Stays with me, it resonates with me. It affects the entire planet. It, it affects all of us. It's not, not only not kills the Amazon, but also the ecosystems, and it, it's also killing the indigenous people there. I read online last year, I believe early last year, about a woman, an indigenous woman in the Amazon who is a chief, and she is learning to read and write so that she can go out and talk about this. Bolsonaro says, that's a lie, there's no burning down of the Amazon. We know that he's selling this land to cattle ranchers and so on. It's a travesty. It's awful. There's no words to describe it. But she says in her, in her bravery and her courage that she is learning to read and write so that she can go and speak to the people who can, who can help and do something about this. And so the title of the poem, Amazon, Amazonias Dacimango, is, is in Portuguese. And it's told from, it's a, it's a persona poem from her perspective, which I've often done in my poetry. I did it a couple of times and I spoke as a two-spirit person in the, in, as in the, in Huchitan and Southern uh, Mexico, which I've also traveled to and felt very connected to, you know, I've done a little traveling and, and I did it in this poetry take on her persona. It's important to me. I don't know if it's my empathy, but it's important to me because it also brings the reader closer to feeling connected and understanding the perspective of the subject. If, you're, if I'm not removing it, 
we would prefer to have first voice to testimony. I would prefer that she write something in my book. I, I read her words and I put, and I interpret them for this poem. Thank you for enlightening us on everything that's happening in Brazil currently with the administration. I wanted to also touch on your last poem, and you titled it The Book of the Dead. Who or what is Shivarba? And Shivarba in particular is where the lion people go. I make, I did a combination of, of the people that we call the Aztecs, the Mexica people of Central, some of their beliefs, and I freely use poetic uh, license and include some of the lion beliefs. There was some overlapping in the latter part of their history. Um, and Shibaba is a place where they, they will go. But I'm also mostly emphasizing where the Mexica people go after death. Most of them. Because, you know, they all, there's de designated roles. Babies go, they go automatically to paradise because they're babies. And then there's the warriors and they have their, their own particular paradise. The mothers of warriors become butterflies. So, you know, there's all different designations, but the everyday person had to go through this, this series of challenges and they're very harrowing and I describe them. But as Mia mentioned early on, you know, that I'm also referring to this, this place can also be earth, can also be our paradise. It's also our hell. And in that book of poems, I am talking about here. I'm talking about it metaphorically, use referencing what my ancestors said we would experience. But in many ways, I felt that we were all going through this in, in different ways. Well, 2020, COVID, you know, the past administration, I don't want to say more, evoke anything else. And so many deaths in our lives, and we just mentioned the Amazon, you know, environmental issues and, and all of that, police brutality, Black Lives Matter, so many things that have been going on in the last few years that have been calling our attention at different moments, leaving us restless. And so I wrote about that metaphorically in my book of the dead, in the poem. Well, going back to movements that are happening now and are very much interrelated with what was going on before. This Black Lives Matter campaign that's currently going on. You have a poem actually titled on the 15th anniversary of the Black Panther Party, where you discuss current movements that are happening now and are very much interrelated with what was going on before. Can you expand? You know, I was a, a girl in Chicago during the, and the Black pa pa Panthers were in Chicago. Maybe 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, I'm becoming um, uh, aware of my environment. And so it was very influential in my way of thinking. The Black Panthers had, of course, like all, all the anti-establishment movements at the time had their enemies that were, were under surveillance and so on. But they also had many supporters who did believe in uh, democracy or the, the dream of democracy and, and, and were anti-racism and so on. Very, very critical times for this country and this world. And fast forward 50 years and I see it. I'm still here and I see it. And I see this resurgence because maybe we only put 
the beast to sleep. Maybe we only knocked them out with a stun gun, but now it's back. To my mind, politically speaking, it was inevitable. I am so thankful to the young activists that have so bravely taken up these causes and speak out and during COVID and, and, you know, in front of police and possibly being gassed and so forth last year went out into the streets because they believe in, in social justice. And so it's not two, it's not separate generations. It's not different movements. It's a continuation of the same, the same social ills, if you will, that we have been living and experiencing and enduring and surviving under what I consider to be corporate, corporate's imperial capitalism. And it's so difficult for any individual to extract themselves from any one of those things on a given day that we can't get out of it. It's like being a fly on sticky paper, you know, once you get caught. We'd like to, we, each of us, and we've seen this on social media, we're like to think of us all as good people. And we like to think that we are fierce and hardcore and we would never do this so we won't do that and you will catch me out there and and I'm not a racist and I don't and I'm not this and you know all these kind of things that we think we are exempt from and then and then when you go down the checklist of the ways that you might be culprit in contributing to this you will find yourself integrated we, we, we can talk about our lifestyle. We can talk about the, the way that we, we consume things and what we consume and how we dispose of it and so on and so forth. Even our having a new cell phone is contributing to it. We can go on with the, with the list. And I've, I've gone through periods of time where I've gone through that list and almost lost my mind because you, what can you do? How do you, how do you extract yourself totally and be guiltless of contributing contributing in any way to to some of the injustices that we are we know exist and are destroying humanity destroying the earth destroying our environment and so on so we have to choose and the black lives matter movement is is critical it's critical on so many levels and none of it can be separated but sometimes we focus on one thing over another or or over many other things because we just don't have the energy or the wherewithal to fight it all and to fight it all by yourself all the time. Yeah, it's yeah, we have to choose. That that is the thing. You know, it's very interesting. It must be such, you know, delicate needle to thread because in this book you have uh, your your political conscience and also, you know, of all the you spoke before about all the different different heavens or different hells or different places people go and they exist alongside each other and you can choose from this huge range of history because time overlaps in these these places it all time exists at once so how do you choose on on that other level you have you know people like Trayvon Martin is there or your friend Ache Carrillo is there and as you said before Bolaño and Bukowski and and all these and kind of echoes of Trump and, and all this kind of political as well as the artistic. I'd like to make two comments and I'll try to make it brief. One is an answer that I have been giving to students and, and my audiences for many years now. You know, when we're 18, 19 years old, 17 years old, 15, you become aware of all the things that 
have gone wrong in the world that you've inherited and you want to blame your parents and your teachers and your political leaders. And at some point at 18, 19, 20 years old, you get out there and you feel that you, you and your generation are going to make it right. And five years later, perhaps you start to see yourself, if not the people around you burn out. And that's because of what I just said. It's too much. It's a lot. And one person or, or one organization, um, even if it wasn't, it was left undisturbed to, to pursue its goals, it would be a lot. But we, we know that we, I mean, we face opposition all the time. So my advice has been to younger people or to anyone who from one day to the next has this, this illumination is to choose one thing, and I know it's very, very hard, and it's and one thing leads to another thing. But choose one thing that you are very passionate about that that is an injustice. We've used the Black Lives Movement. We could talk about sexism. We can talk about one of my passions was uh, body trafficking for a very, very long time, and it hasn't lessened. Some people experience the, the infusion of drugs in, in our communities or, or personally experience it or with their sons or, or siblings, and, and that becomes their passion. Prison industry could be a passion for somebody to say, I'm going to go out there. I know that I mentioned Angela Davis earlier. I know that's one of her passions that she works with. And so you choose that one thing that you can put all your energy into as much as you can so that you're not burning out trying to save the world. And you can come home at the end of the day or close your computer or get out of your woman cave, your man cave. Attend to your mother, your early parents, your child that needs work with their homework, walk the dog, have some supper with your companion, comb your hair, do, do some self-care, you know, do something nice for yourself so that you will give back to yourself, give to your people, the people in your environment, those in your immediate home, your, that they are not neglected, that you are not neglected. And you can get some rest at night and start again tomorrow. And that is going to be your journey. That will be what, what you'll have to do. And I want to make a very small comment. And I, 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 it's a kind of a delayed response on my friend, Acha Carrillo, whom I considered a personal friend. After he died last year of COVID, he was a novelist. I knew him as uh, an immigrant from Cuba, very dark-skinned black gay man who... And, and anywhere in the world would be a dark-skinned black man, gay man, who would experience the prejudices and the things that, that, that you know, we see everywhere. It, it came to light, and I was questioned about this afterwards because of the poem in my book, that he, in fact, had manufactured his Cuban identity. And he was married and married for about six years, and it was news to his husband he was not from Cuba, but as a matter of fact, African-American from Detroit and had studied at the same university I had just taught at around the same time in Chicago. Nobody understands why he did that. His family doesn't understand why he did that. I don't. I, as his husband and his dear friends and people who loved him, have no response to that. We can get into a psychological analysis of it. But my comments that I do want to make about that and, and the event that 
people question it. It was questioned as if somehow that took away from my love and friendship with him. But more importantly, in my book of the dead, I'm addressing COVID. I'm addressing racism. I'm addressing homophobia. I'm addressing the, the, the many challenges that poets and writers, especially poets and writers of color in this country have, which is a challenge he took on. It's not as if he went up and said, I'm going to pretend I'm a white privileged man. He said, I'm an immigrant from this country that's an enemy of this country and so on. And, and, and so I, nobody understands what, what the rationale was behind that that was so convincing. But it doesn't take away any of my appreciation for him and his value as a human being and as, and as a teacher that he was. And, and it puts in relief our experiences as marginalized communities, how there is no escape from that. You can't pass for something else. You can't make yourself something else. Ana Castillo teaches us about the importance of preserving not only our human relations and respect for people, but also Mother Earth. She reminds us that in a world where there are many issues, we must stay grounded in one of our most yearning passions, which we have all been assigned. Whether you find it in your formative, adolescent, adulthood, or senior years, Ana teaches us that throughout our life trajectory, we should never tear others down, whether it be with our words or actions. In our life path as humans, we may come across many pitfalls and roadblocks. However, if as humans, we could make it easy for everyone to live a beautiful and respectful life, why go against the grain? One thing is certain, on Mother Earth, there are no borders. The current environmental problems that are arising deserve the attention of everyone. And as we move forward, let us look to the knowledge of our original peoples, the indigenous who inhabit the lands, as they deserve respect for all that they do for our ecosystem. The Amazon, for example, is said to be the lungs of the earth. This is a message to all. Love with an open heart and communicate with a gentle soul. Take care and never forget your duty to this planet and all its living beings. Thank you. Now back to the interview. It's interesting because I do believe to some extent, at least metaphorically, we all live fictional lives. Even if you can do it visually, you can't. One way or the other, you have to deal with the challenge. Well, maybe that's what makes life uh, bearable. But some have lived deeper fictions, you know, to or feel spiritually akin to because they've grown up around, you know, like this kind of this happens. Exactly. Maybe it, it becomes it becomes it only becomes a an emphasis. When, you know, when the person reaches a certain celebrity or notoriety or success, the question, the question, we don't have to get into it. The question I think that came up was, as opposed to when a white woman is passing for a black person and becomes successful and was, you know, assuming that identity, I mean, he was a very, I, as I mentioned, he was a dark skinned black man, gay man, openly gay, and that he did not, you know, quibble about with anyone. It was, it was the, the nationality 
and and it still left people scratching their heads. But I I I, I love your viewpoint, especially people who who seek a certain amount of of public life, which writers of poets also do. We say we don't, but we do. And there's a constant reinvention. We're constantly reinventing our histories and, and our families, whether we do it in our writing, whether we do it in interviews. From decade to decade, to decade we reinvent our, our, our images, whether we are conscious of it or not. So I, I like that and that, you know, he, he went a little deeper than most people did, but, but, you know, who can say, you know, what, what the motivation is, you know, maybe we get tired of being who you were and you say, well, you know, this is how I feel more comfortable portraying myself now. Sure. It's become, you know, trans identity as well. It, it becomes another, you know, it just, who, who has more permission to, to transform themselves. I'm wondering about you as you were a, a young person, you know, obviously the art was something that drew you very early on and writing, you know, do you see the seeds of the writer and artist you would become in your, and activist in, in your young self? I was in junior and senior year of public high school in Chicago. I was attending mostly girl school, urban school that uh, was training. It was a, like a vocational school training girls to be office workers. As a brown woman, at that time, my, my options were somewhat limited, even working in an office. At that time, if we can imagine a brown woman, and if you had a little bit of an accent, that was very bad, but let's just say brown woman with a little bit of an accent would not be hired, for example, as a reception, as a receptionist in an office because the company, or even a dentist's office, let's say, small office because the company did not want the people that came in to see you being representative representative so the so that would be how you it would be limited it would also be limited in that you could be and i was hired very young at 15 years old i was working with the false id as a file clerk but i would never have been a private secretary because again they don't want a person of color being representing the company. So that was, the, that was sort of the background for me. And by the time I'm in that school, we have the Black Panthers, we have the Black movements was huge. Chicago movements in the West Coast, we're hearing about it, things going on, student movement, women's movement, all of this is going on. And so in my little head, I start, you know, as I'm reading about this, thinking about this and thinking, well, what are my options in this world? And so it, it politicized me. And I was working in an office via my, my vocational school where they uh, were installing these brand new Xerox machines. So this is like a big deal in technology, Xerox machines. And I began a little radical paper on my own where I could make copies and staple them and, and distribute them at the school that was talking about all of these things. And I recruited people to write for my newspaper. 
and wrote for it myself and drew and, you know, and things like that. So, so yes, at, at a very young age, I was already being politicized by seeing, seeing what my limited, what the pattern was there already set out for me, the mold versus what was going on in the world and what I wanted to be a part of. Thank you so much, Anaka. Thanks to you for all that. And I also wanted to mention that it's because of scholarship like Chicanisma, like this book, that people in the global world feel um, heard because being a Chicana, we have this identity of not being from here nor there, which is why we have this tie to our indigenous identity when we include the X, right? And so we're taking back our actual uh, purpose on this world that we call Asman. So, yeah, I also just wanted to say, Thank you so much for, you know, giving um, advice on following a passion and not to burn yourself out. So uh, for me, it's reproductive justice. And so thank you so much for, for doing um, this work. Well, I, I wish you a lot of luck and strength and courage. And I think that every one of those things that reproductive justice is one more of the things that I've been very passionate about as you read in Massacre of the Dreamers. And, and as I say, it's all connected, uh, but because you can't save the world all by yourself, you, but you can make a difference and you can make changes all by yourself. And so I wish you all the best with that. And I'm very happy that you're, that you're passionate and dedicated to it. And we think with this project, I mean, you've made a, not just a small change, but a huge change and in different areas of life. But we think about the future a lot with this education. How can we improve our education system, our political system? And, you know, what is the importance of the arts and how can it serve these things? So as you think about the future, what are some things that you would like to change? You know, what were some things important in life lessons for you? And, and what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, I, I, I always hesitate to, to pontificate <laughs> to, to younger people, because as you know, there are younger people that say, yeah, 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 those were back in those times and you don't know, and we know, and, and so on and so forth. So I, I hesitate. And also because we are also moving at a, at a breaking speed rate of technology where dads science fiction 21st century that we used to wonder about is here it's upon us so i don't know how much personal advice i can i can offer about that there are some things that that we can hold on to the preservation of of mutual respect understanding how our ancestors taught us that a mutual respect not just for other human beings which is enough, and other human beings, your family, and for your elders, and, and and taking care of our children, but also as a say of your neighbor and of your communities, and moving on, uh, but also of the planet and of our environment and of our, of of that which sustains us. And passion can be in preserving our air and our water and so on. These are the things that will keep us in some way, will preserve us for some time. I don't know how long. So I would like to express the desire and a wish for that empathy that we may have and the patience that we may have for each other, especially in the last few years, I have found a great degree of 
the generation of, of our courtesies. And it's a very small thing. I am very passionate about it. I, my mother was a very, a very humble indigenous woman, but also very stoic. And she had been raised by her grandparents who came from the 19th century. And so she had 19th century values that she was imposing on her children. And so I, I still think about that. I think, well, you know, how, how old fashioned may I be? But I don't think there's anything wrong with courtesies and politeness and, and being aware of people around us and just doing things, opening the door for someone in the street, not raising your voice, you know, at, at people for, for whatever reason, not spending time on social media, being a hater and trolling people, find ways in which you can be a productive person in our society. And if not so much pr productive, be positive and find things that you can do. As I mentioned earlier, find your passion to fight oh, the many inequities that we have. And, and nobody has to tell you what to do. Nobody has to interpret it for you. You can see it and you can do it. It's, the, the, it, it's a lot, takes as much time and it's, a, and it's just as easy to be decent and polite and caring as it is to be the opposite. And I think we've lost that, you know? And so I, it's a really tight, it's a really small, it seems almost a frivolous request or life lesson, but I miss it immensely. I miss the general um, decencies that we, we have as, as we go out in the world and have so much on our mind and have so much to do. And I replaced it with a self-importance and a narcissism that to me, I find it insufferable. You know, we're all here doing our best, trying our best, and there's a nice way to do things rather than just being outright, not only uh, rude, but often crude and, and hurtful, painful. We have a lot of people in pain, a lot of communities in pain. And so as they are out and about, we don't need to add to it. And so that would be my, my life lesson. When I was a younger woman and I wrote Massacre of the Dreamers, people were almost afraid to interview me because they would say, oh, I thought you'd be an angrier, an angrier woman. And I said, well, I used to be a lot angrier, but as we get older, we, we, we begin to, to develop a certain patience, a certain tolerance. It doesn't mean you accept every, everything, but you learn to, to deal with things in a more gracious manner. And that's, that's what I've learned in life is that it's, it, it costs the same amount of energy to be gracious and to be patient. You know, I think it's, you say it's a small thing. I think it's almost everything because the courtesy that you speak of is what we reserve, you know, for our loved ones. And it's also, I feel deeply linked to poetry, this more gracious manner. It's what you do in your poetry, you're telling hard truths, but you're seeing the beauty in it and the harmony and the rhythms. Thank you. And it, and it goes to back to what I said that I think quite often people on the outside think that poems are rants and subtle thoughts and ideas we had and oh, a catharsis for anger or sadness. But the real work in the, in the, in the craftswomanship, the craftsmanship, is, is, is being selective of how are you going to tell this and how are you going to get people to, to pay attention? 
the poem on the Black Panthers, for example, I worked at and I reworked it because I understood that initially it did have a Ray Brand's quality to it. So much was coming out of me and I, and I didn't get rid of all the rent because some of the rent I think was, was kind of merited in the subject, but I didn't want to turn off new readers, uh, new people to the subject by just yelling at them about, about what they've already been told. How do you tell it in a way that's interesting or new or, or can hook, bring them in? relatable for them. And so that those are some of the some of the things that I think are the are the, the tasks for the poet. Do you think we might end on you reading a poem, maybe the last poem or 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 the Black Panther poem? I would be very happy to read from it. We referenced Amazonia Stalkimando, which is about the Amazon and, and the environment. And you know, I I as a poet I've said this and as a woman of color I feel very privileged to to have been able to and and I did it in this country which which allowed me to do it to have a voice a voice that some people can hear and when I write a persona poem I think that's part of what I'm doing is giving voice voice to something I hope and I hope I'm doing justice to to a voice that may be underrepresented and so it is a persona poem and and it's called Amazonia está quemando the Amazon is burning one, we sing and dance in praise of the butterfly, translucent blue, gilded wings, dances all its life. From orchid to cacao, saba to banana and fig, tying invisible strings that hold our home in the sky. It must, lest we drop into an abyss or drift where the gods won't find us. This place, where butterflies work for you and me, keep rivers full and flowing. Amapari, Canapantuba, and Feliz, the wide and deep goddess far beyond we call the sea. Rain, floods and droughts, a mist or fog, the sun finds us each dawn after a journey home. When the moon comes to guide both the weary and the ready to pounce and hide. Our home is burning. Two. Menacing fires blaze, moneyed whites rid the earth of the people, anacondas and spider monkeys, hawks and toucans, cicadas and cinnamon, glass frogs and vines, palm and rubber trees. Tapirs and manatees, we hear their screams, and all that dies silently. A Amazona, a a Amazonia is the Kemald. They want our abundant lands and to annihilate our mother's opulence. They will end the dance of the butterflies, and then what? We too will die, like in a story told by the ancestors that we only imagined. They come for our copper, gold, and ore. Ranchers and loggers raise the land. At the United Nations, Bolsonaro announced, go listen to what you hear on the news. Lies, nothing is burning. Nothing has been set ablaze. Three, we are Waipi. We keep the butterflies happy. 
they stay working to hold the planet in place. We are the guardians of our mother. Each day before I go to school, I smear the sweet juice of arukulum seeds on my body and face. They are a protection from insects and evil spirits. I sit in a classroom with a thatched roof and other Waipi women. I am the only grandmother there. I am chief of my people. I will learn to read and speak to those who set fires and to the ones who may help save our home. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, Anna Castillo, for your writing across genres, which reminds us of the beauty and transience of life, like the butterflies, and for your activism, feminism, and speaking up about injustices while never forgetting your sense of wonder and respect for the natural world. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process and One Planet podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Mischowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Nia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Yesenia Olmos. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadilis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.